Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chalner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on the programme today on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Richard Bacon. Richard is the Managing Director of award-winning print specialist, the Sherwood Group, and Chief Executive of Loxley's, the UK's largest independent card manufacturer. Uh, Richard, very warm welcome to you this morning, and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. You're welcome. Absolutely fine. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the airways with us. Um, Normally at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the topic of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle. Because it's been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself and your businesses, Richard, to what extent has it changed things? Um, It's had quite a big impact, really, Scott. Um, we, we actually saw the effects of um, the COVID situation coming um, quite early on. Uh, we have a couple of businesses in the Far East. Uh, we've got a factory in China and an office in Hong Kong. Um, so we've actually been through the problems with COVID um, relating to staff, battery production, etc. cetera, um, back in sort of December and January. Um, so we actually took some very early measures on um, regarding COVID during January. Uh, we put in extra measures into the business because the the main thing that we feel and can still feel is obviously the health and well-being of our employees. So, you know, we, we put in extra measures into um, both, both UK manufacturing sites. Um, we bought large supplies of PPE, face masks, um, sanitizers. And we also put in a lot of additional biosecurity measures, um, one-way systems around the factories and things like that. With regard to business, um, it has had a big impact. Um, we, we saw a big drop in the greeting card side of the business um, initially, mainly mm. due to the lockdown and the high street shutting down. So we did use the furlough scheme extensively in the greeting card side of the business. Um, with regard to packaging, it's really not had a major effect. Um, mainly the main markets that we operate in are food packaging. Um, so as, as we stand at the moment, um, we are doing quite well as a business. Um, packaging is around about 80% of normal um, and greeting cards are about 70% of normal. So um, it has been uh, a roller coaster ride, um, rules change. Um, and you have to continually adapt. But as a business, we've always been able to do that. And from that experience of having to adapt to this new reality, is there anything in your leadership role you'd say that you perhaps learned from all of this? Yes, communication is absolutely key. Um, and that's um, right throughout the business. Um, we, we've got a lot of staff working from home. Um, I personally have been working uh, from home. as have um, most of the administration staff. Mm. Um, to the sales staff and we've had to learn to use new technology um, you know uh, sort of teams meetings um, and um, I think it's been a particularly big challenge for the sales force of the business they they were very much sort of into face-to-face meetings pre-COVID and building relationships um, on a personal basis 
Um, and so they've had to learn how to use the new technologies that we've introduced into the company. Um, and um, varying degrees of success. Um, I'm quite surprised how people have managed to change and adapt. Um, so they're having customer meetings online, face to face. And, um, you know, it, it has been it has been a difficult period, but I would say it's also um, been quite an illuminating experience because mm. um, a lot of people who have been working from home have found different challenges. And we've had to give them a lot of help and support with regard to that. Some people have found it really good life balance, the fact that they are working from home. Um, and other people have found it obviously very difficult. Um, my personal experience is, um, it saved me three hours a day in a car traveling mm. to and from the office, um, which is great. Um, but I also do miss um, the relationships that you have within the business. Um, my my style of leadership has always been, you know, work hard, play hard, um, make it as fun as possible um, because business can be difficult. So um, my view has always been to try and make it as enjoyable as you possibly can and don't add to the pressure with regard to everyday work and everyday life. Um, it is interesting, isn't it, the work from home situation, because it does come with its own set of challenges. It does have its benefits, but it does also have its pitfalls, and it isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think, as you say, the uh, the human social contact that you do get from being in the workplace, I think that is something that we have taken for granted, and it does mean, therefore, that there are well-being arguments on both sides both for the working from home and also for having one or two days a week in the workplace perhaps so with regard to those um, considerations what do you think long term the future of particularly the office workplace is going to look like do you think we'll see that coming back in vogue or do you think that the hybrid between work from home and um, working within the office is probably going to be the way of it for the future my personal view would be the hybrid version is going to be the long-term future. Um, it's quite interesting. We we have uh, we have different meetings online. Um, we have a directors meeting every day um, online, and it's amazing that the board meetings that used to start at ten o'clock in the morning and finish at five o'clock in the evening um, uh, we used to take a long time because we're, we're running a, a different group of businesses. Um, they now take an awful lot shorter time. Um, which is actually a very pleasant thing. It's been only take about three hours, which is great. Um, life balance to me is really important, and I think I think it's a, a thing that will continue in the future. Um, we've we've changed and adapted over the last few months. We we have sort of almost like a rotation system where people who have been working from home will probably go into the office one day per week. Um, uh, obviously, socially distanced, keeping keeping to the rules that we have uh, within the business. Um, and I think that people have actually found that um, a much better way of working. So, you know, three or four days working at home, you know, one or two days in the office. And my personal view is that that will continue um, during during what we have uh, an online meeting each week um, with the entire admin crew. Um, so there's um, probably about 25, 30 people attending that online meeting. And um, I was actually asked by one of, one of the ladies uh, who works for me, she said, you know, when do you think we'll all come back to the office? And I have to say to her, I don't think we ever will. Um, I don't think it will ever go back to normal because, you know, um, a lot of people have found it extremely useful having that life balance of being able to work from home and at the office when they need to. And I, and I personally think that that's probably 
the way forward for our businesses and for an awful lot of people. And just over the last few months, just how has it been sort of managing things from a mental health point of view? Because I can imagine there has been a lot of heightened anxiety by not just the financial situation, but also the sort of physical health situation. And it's also about making sure that during such a stressful time and managing a crisis, you also take a step back and safeguard your own mental well-being, as well as looking after that of those around you as a leader as well. That's right. Absolutely. Um, we've, we've got a really good um, HR team. And mm-hmm. what we do is every week or every two weeks, they actually do sort of a, almost like a well-being survey. So they will be phoning people up or they will be having an online chat with them. And it's nothing to do about work. It's, it's all about how they're feeling, how they're doing. Do they need any help? Do they need any support? Um, you know, um, so... From, from, from a work point of view, you know, it is important. We have had people who have found it very difficult. From a personal point of view, um, I, I found it good and bad. Um, a similar experience to a lot of people. You know, um, the fact that I'm at home, you, I, can, I can nip outside with my dogs and go for a walk. Um, if I'm feeling a, sort of a bit stressed, I can do that. Um, but, it, but, it is, but it can be lonely, it can be difficult. And, and I think the key thing is really coming back down to interactions with people, making sure that you do talk to people and mainly talk to people face-to-face, uh, albeit online. Um, it does make a massive difference mm. rather than just having a telephone call, actually being able to look at another human being, um, see their reaction, um, engage with them. Um, even though you're not physically sitting in front of them. And and I think the mental health side of the whole COVID situation is probably going to be one of the big things um, in the future months and for, for as long as it continues. Um, and I think it's something that, um, from, a, from a personal point of view as a leader, um, in the past, um, I've probably been guilty of not actually recognising mental health as being as important as it actually is. Mm. Um, and it's probably now one of the most important things that um, as a leader that you do consider when you actually are making decisions with regard to business, with regard to employees, with regard to you know um, a lot of the direction that the business is going to be going in. And thinking about that direction that the business is going to be going in, particularly over the next year, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, Richard, because I'm conscious we are running short of time. Um, we know that over the course of the uh, the next few months, it's going to be a tricky winter that we'll have to navigate first before we can really think about the longer term future, albeit we can't think too long into the future because things change at such short notice these days that sort of the months and years that you plan for have tended to become days and weeks now. But if we could sort of pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment. Um, looking into the next 12 months, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve both at the Sherwood Group and Loxley's and where do you want the businesses to be this time in a year? Very good question, Scott. Um, we, we, we have visibility at the moment, probably a month at a time. Um, we're, we're constantly changing direction, constantly analysing the situation. Um, for us as a business and for me personally, I, I my, my most important thing is looking after our people, um, our staff, um, their health, their well-being, and obviously keeping um, as many people um, in employment as possible. But we've always been financially prudent and we've always uh, reinvested back in the business. So we're in a very fortunate position and very little debt within any of the businesses. And in fairness, 
Um, a lot of our growth has been during recessions of the past. We've we've always managed to grow the businesses quite rapidly during those periods because because of the way that we react to markets. We're always very quick to change and adapt. Um, in the next twelve months, um, I see part of our business changing quite rapidly. Uh, we've invested in uh, new equipment recently um, in face mask making machinery. Um, and uh, PP equipment making machinery. And we've got a, a, a small emerging uh, market that's growing rapidly in that area. Um, and I can see that that will be a new market for ourselves. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of it depends on the economy. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of it depends on um, the markets that we operate in. And I think, I think as a business, um, if you're in the right market um, and... Um, you're operating with customers that are also in the right market, then the future should be good. It should be okay. Uh, in 12 months' time, I want all my businesses to be profitable, uh, which they are. I want as many of my staff that I currently employ to be employed um, and really to, to continually change direction as and when we need to and grow. Um, it's going to be a very tricky 12 months. Um, it is going to be a difficult time. Um, but as a business, we've always been never afraid of change. One of the things we have in the business is, you know, don't, don't be afraid of making a decision, going for it. And if you have to change direction, don't be afraid of changing direction. Um, it's the same within the business that a lot of people use, uh, that I use and other people use. You know, if the saying goes, get, just get the boat out of the harbour. You know, set the course, set sail. Um, Start the journey. If you have to change direction um, because you've got to get to a different area or a different end, then don't be afraid of it. Just change. Learn quickly. And um, and that's just something as a business we've always done. And um, we're pretty confident that the future um, will will be okay. It will be good, but it it will be it will be difficult. Um, these these times are very very different to anything the world has ever seen before. Um, but I'm always totally impressed um, with different businesses that I interact with and how quickly people do change and adapt, mm. you know. And it's, and it's something that I think all businesses will have to do. And, um, and if they do that, uh, they will be successful. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a situation that everybody faces. And um, you know, the one thing that, that is, has always been there is that humans do change and adapt and, they do they do go forward exactly right and we are very adaptable we are very flexible and we are going to have to continue to do that going into the uh, the future for sure and we've seen an incredible amount of that over the last few months from business and industry as it's pivoted to deal with this um, some wonderful amounts of it as well and that sort of positivity that entrepreneurial spirit it's going to be so so important over the next few months and I think Richard just given how of course um, enlightening it's been having you come onto the program to talk about what your businesses have been up to over the last few months I think it would be wonderful to actually catch up and have you back on the program at some point in the next year just to see how things are starting to tick along absolutely delighted yeah it's been an absolute pleasure Scott likewise Richard I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the program today and uh, most importantly as well until we do hopefully get to speak again please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on and I will extend that to everybody associated with both the Sherwood Group and Loxley's as well thank you very much Scott and to yourself 
And that message also goes to all of the listeners tuning into today's podcast as well. Please do continue to be sensible, stay well, look after yourselves, be considerate of others as well, because it does make such a difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Richard Bacon from the Sherwood Group and Loxley's onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed quite a distinct career despite being blind from birth. He held numerous senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He's been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere, 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to t- be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.